Oh, hello everyone, and welcome back to Popcorn. I'm thrilled you're all back, and I want to welcome some of our new listeners who are joining us from Dallas, Texas in the United States, the state of Lower Saxony in Germany, Tokyo, Japan, Singapore, and somewhere in Russia, although I don't know specifically where in Russia. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I'm going to be talking today about the question of whether or not a Christian should be reading and enjoying Stephen King. This is a question that's been asked of me many times since my first experience with King's work, which, if anyone's interested, was when I read Carrie at the age of 13. There are people who seem to believe that Christians shouldn't be reading King because it's too dark or evil. However, it's been my experience that relatively little of his work is too dark or evil to tolerate and that much of it is actually quite uplifting. It's interesting that Stephen King's work displays a sophisticated grasp of theology. Most of his fans are probably not aware of that. They understand that he's intelligent and that he has an excellent grasp of the psychology of ordinary people, but not everyone seems to understand that his own comprehension of Christian theology is actually elegant, as well as more complex than most people will give him credit for. King's body of Christian characters spans a wide spectrum of human nature. It reminds me of something that one of these characters once said about writing. Bill Denbrough, one of the protagonists of the novel It, in a confrontation with a college writing instructor, essentially complains that the work of his classmates is contrived. Bill says that politics, culture, and history are natural ingredients in any story if it's told well. He seems to feel as though the attributes that the students in his classes give their stories are artificially inserted. He's not wrong. His fellow students appear to be that type who will write a vignette as he says that is, quote, a socio-political statement in the manner of the early Orwell, unquote, simply for the purpose of making a statement like that. But King apparently believes that this process is backwards that a character that is created organically will naturally develop or evolve believable characteristics that don't have to be forcibly inserted. The religious or spiritual beliefs of a character are natural ingredients of that character. They don't get added to the character piecemeal, like adding flour and eggs and sugar into a batch of cookie dough. A great example of this is the character of David Carver in the novel Desperation. David is a teenage boy who is also a devout Christian. This is not something that's tacked onto him like a physical characteristic like his taste in clothing. It's something that's a part of him in the same way that it is inextricably a part of the story. It was David I was thinking of earlier when I said that King has a sophisticated grasp of theology. David's discussions of faith with his priest and mentor, Reverend Martin, have a genuine quality to them. The quality of someone who is sincerely soul-searching, credibly in search of answers to his questions. David is not a flat character. There's more to his quest for faith than passing references to church attendance, and it doesn't appear as though his faith is invented as a matter of convenience. Donald Callahan is another interesting example of a sincere and well-intentioned Christian character. He's a Catholic priest whom we first meet in Salem's Lot. It's apparent at that time that he has lost his faith and no longer believes in the basics of Christianity. 
By the time he reappears as a character in Wolves of the Kala, the fifth book in the Dark Tower series, he indicates that he has moved through pastoring several different churches, always moving on because of concerns that he explains in terms of, quote, anomie, urban malaise, an increasing lack of empathy, a sense of disconnection from the life of the spirit, unquote. He describes the use of these phrases as using all the correct buzzwords, but he also acknowledges that he has gotten his situation backwards. While he believes that he has developed a drinking problem as a result of these spiritual limitations, what he fails to see until it is much too late is that he has developed spiritual limitations as a result of his drinking problem. From my own personal experience, I know that this form of self-deception, getting cause and effect relationships backwards, is common for alcoholics. And of course, King knows this well, being an alcoholic himself. It's tempting to see Father Callahan as evidence of Stephen King's contempt for Christianity, but Callahan is actually an example of King's reverence for the faith, not for the church. It's important, at least to King, to make this distinction. In Salem's Lot, a terrible thing happens to him. Called on to be the spiritual leader of a group of people who are trying to kill a vampire, Callahan discovers that his faith has begun to dissipate and is no longer useful to either himself or his companions. King seems to be saying that the physical trappings of the church, the host, the crucifix, the holy water, have only the symbolic power that his faith has vested them with, and that, in fact, they are impotent if he himself doesn't believe them. To come back to the point, Callahan is a complex, well-rounded character, particularly if you consider the arc of his development between his initial appearance in Salem's Lot and his ultimate disposition in the Dark Tower, Book 7. He's been to seminary. He understands concepts like anomie and spiritual disconnection, and most importantly, he is someone of deep spiritual character, particularly in his later appearances. In fact, Part of the reason why he is a good example of a character with profound spiritual understanding is that King goes beyond these essential tenets of Christian religion and is actually able to successfully syncretize these with the quasi-spiritual beliefs of the world that exists beyond our own conscious understanding. He integrates this character's Christian orthodoxy in the real world with the unorthodox beliefs of his fantasy world. King would have to have more than a passing understanding of Christian belief in order to successfully do this, regardless of whether or not he subscribed to the doctrines of Christianity himself. By now, I'm hoping that you can see that King's interest in the subject of religion is more than a passing fancy or something created merely as a plot element to be picked off the menu of devices as needed. King was raised Methodist, and although he has made it plain that he is openly disdainful of the negative aspects of organized religion, his disdain nonetheless doesn't preclude a belief in the existence of God. How he explores this belief in his stories is a large part of what makes them so relatable. King's work inspires hope, particularly when he wrestles with faith. There's always hope in his work, even if it's hard to see sometimes. Even his darkest writing orients itself toward a realistic species of hope. If he writes a tale about an entire town that's been taken over by vampires, as he did in Salem's Lot, he refuses to give up hope. What sometimes confounds people 
is that the realistic nature of this orientation means that it's sometimes a very faint hope, one that's difficult to see. Because as you all surely already know, life isn't always easy, and a belief in God doesn't necessarily make it any easier. David Carver learns this lesson the hard way. God is cruel, but God's cruelty is refining. This is an ongoing theme in desperation, which may seem sacrilegious, even blasphemous, to people who, as I do, believe that God is a God of love. But the idea of God as a God of refining cruelty is not original to Stephen King. In his book, The Problem of Pain, Christian theologian and apologist C.S. Lewis pointed out that what many people expect to find when they seek a loving God is not a father in heaven, but rather a grandfather in heaven, a kindly old man with a long white beard who will happily and indulgently forbear from wrath with any mistake we make. When people speak of God's love, he says, they tend to confuse it for kindness, but the two are not necessarily the same thing. Lewis doesn't explicitly state that God's love is cruel, as King does, but I think that he would definitely agree with King's idea that God's love is refining. And it only makes sense that such a refining nature creates a problem in human beings who may find such refinement difficult or even painful. Lewis also briefly explored this idea in one of the novels in his Narnia series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In the book, Eustace, a character who has been turned into a dragon, tries to shed his dragon's skin to become human again through his own efforts. He soon learns that he will not be able to become human again without assistance from Aslan, the god figure in the story. Aslan pierces the dragon's skin more deeply than Eustace has been able to. Eustace finds the process excruciatingly painful, but understands that it is critical for the proper shedding of the skin. The pain is akin to the cruelty of God, not necessarily pleasant, but still necessary for the casting off of the old self. As simplistic as it might be to look at King's work as that which only arouses base and prurient interest in his fans, it's equally easy to point out the fact that it is almost never without hope. At the end of the Dark Tower, when it seems as though Roland is doomed to repeat his cycle into eternity, a voice whispers, and perhaps this time, if you get there, it will be different. He touches the horn that rides on his belt one last time, and he says that its reality is oddly comforting, as if he had never touched it before. This is hope, however faint, and though not all of his work may be said to be infused with it, readers can almost always find it at the end of the story. The character of Randy in the short story, The Raft, whispers, Do you love? Even as it seems Randy will die alone, we know he hasn't lost his capacity for love. And King frames the hope of Salem's lot within a context of the love shown between a teenage boy and his adoptive father figure, a pair of people who are determined to rid their hometown of the evil that has infested it. How do we address that criticism of King's work, that it only appeals to our base nature, the salacious parts of us that want to indulge in the suffering of others. Well, the very same way we look at his exploration of hope. As Christians, 
We look unflinchingly into the darkness, knowing that we have every right to anticipate the hope that is coming. And King's philosophy on the darkness, expressed at an early age, has something in common with the hope of Christians everywhere. He wants to see what's coming. He doesn't want to see it because he loves the evil or worships it. He simply wants to be forewarned. When he was asked as a child why he kept a scrapbook full of newspaper clippings about serial killers, his answer was, I think there's evil out there. I want to know what it is, so when it comes, I can recognize it and get out of the way. It's much too easy to say that King merely focuses on the demonic, capitalizing on the ungodly. That's a sentiment expressed by a person who's wholly unwilling to look any deeper than the surface of the work to probe or to hope for something better. More than one king detractor of the fundamentalist stripe has said that a person becomes like what they focus on. And we should all hope that it's true. Because if it is, then King should count himself blessed indeed because his focus on hope will ultimately shape him into a better person. Philippians 4 says that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what King does. He sees a desperate situation and searches for any hope that might exist in it. He sees what others might find an unredeemable character and finds a redeeming quality. He searches for light in the darkness. Sometimes, as I've said, that light is faint and flickering, almost invisible. Sometimes it's the entire theme of the story, as in the example of Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, when the main character says, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Either way, it's almost always there. Wolves of the Kala, the fifth book in the Dark Tower series, is Stephen King's tribute to Akira Kurosawa's film, The Magnificent Seven, tied in with King's own invented mythology. That film, in turn, was based on an older story that Kurosawa discovered while researching the topic of samurai for his project. The film is a work built almost entirely on the idea of hope, and King took that idea and ran with it, although the themes of the book are deeply intertwined with ideas about honor, friendship, and loyalty. At the heart of it, Wolves is mainly a story about hope. It's a story of a small town that's periodically attacked by strange outside forces of evil on horseback, and of the heroes that come to save the townspeople from these forces. Fans of Kurosawa's film will definitely recognize the similarity in themes. I believe that Christians should engage with the world and wrestle with the issues it presents. The world doesn't show us neatly trimmed edges and happy endings. The real world is messy. It has ragged edges and sudden stops and starts. Its causes and effects are often inexplicable and maddening. So we're called upon to provide answers to the questions the world asks. In the same way, King's stories are not always what we would like to see. His characters try to make sense out of the chaos, the wrestle with the darkness. They may not necessarily be explicitly Christian characters, but many of them do their best to bring light into the darkness. Even a desperately frightening story like Cain Rose Up, 
which features a Charles Whitman-like character shooting at students from his dorm room window, shows a kind of twisted hope. Kurt, the shooter, is trying to make sense of the world. The only way he feels he can do so is by pulling the trigger. He's wrong, of course, but he has hope. He's a man in pain who, like many of us, longs for relief. This is the reason why Christians should read Stephen King. Think of it in terms of what a hurting individual needs. If all of his stories were about level-headed people whose every need and want was satisfied and who were spiritually fulfilled, there would be no reason to engage with the story. Those character types are only interesting in as much as they can serve to provide benefit for people not so fully blessed. Now, probably your natural inclination at this point would be to wonder whether King himself actually is a Christian. I don't believe he would give a straight answer about that. He might say that it would depend largely on how you qualified what a Christian is. Certainly, he was raised in the church, the Methodist church, but I'm sure you all know the old joke about how being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. And King has indicated on more than a few occasions that while he certainly believes that God exists, he doesn't attend church regularly. But King actually has a valid point with regard to the qualifications for being a Christian. King has said that he believes in God, and that's all well and good, but a lot of people who believe in God aren't Christians. It's not a defining characteristic. In fact, those of you who are Christians already know that the defining characteristic of a Christian is a belief in Jesus as the Son of God, who was anointed by God as Savior of humanity and the world, of everyone and everything. No fuzzy generalizations about the balance of the universe or the belief in the essential goodness of humanity will substitute. Now, as far as I know, King, for all his other religious knowledge, has not made this particular profession of faith. And so I would say that he is likely not a Christian by strict definition. But perhaps one day he could be. As King himself might say, hope springs eternal. Some pretty heavy topics today. I hope you've enjoyed them. Or if you haven't, that you may at least have been stimulated in some way by them. Feel free to write to me if the urge strikes you. My email address is sdrost01 at gmail.com. And my blog is at stevedrost.wordpress.com. I've been updating the blog recently with the written texts of some of these podcast episodes, so you can read them there if you like. For next time, I'm toying with some ideas about Mel Gibson's movie, Payback, its relationship with the source material, which is Richard Stark's novel, The Hunter, and how they might be significant for Stephen King fans, particularly for those who enjoyed his book, The Dark Half. Until then, take care and stay safe. Thanks for listening.